Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, let me just say, apologize for the uh, traffic issue this morning. Uh, you know, once a year in, 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 um, in October, the district has a big thing, and uh, it's a, a bit of a challenge. So hopefully it wasn't too frustrating for you. Uh, our parking guys do the best job they can, and they take some gruff, you know, from some people. So uh, if you see anyone with a vest on, give them a hug today, will you? Just give them a hug. So, uh, but I'm glad you made it in. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. New Testament, John 6, and uh, as you know, we are in this series called Collision, a series in which we are uh, looking at various people's encounters with Jesus that are recorded specifically by the Apostle John in his biography on Jesus. And as unique as each of the encounters are, the one thing that we're finding true of all of them, that those people who had either intentional or even unintentional uh, interactions with Jesus, their lives were seriously impacted. Last week, we saw a desperate father ask Jesus to heal his son, and we noted how the man's experience offered a picture of what we called the anatomy of faith. In other words, he showed how genuine faith in Jesus is both rational and experiential. It's both thinking and it's doing. It also showed how faith is affirmed in suffering and how it's a journey, it's not a destination. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go online and listen. I think you'll find it helpful. And just so you know, Jesus did in fact... Uh, um, graciously healed a man's son, and it was quite, quite miraculous. Well, today I want to look at another miracle Jesus performed that impacted the lives of a whole lot of people. Before we do that, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in miracles? It's a question we should ask ourselves periodically because um, it's an important question, and ultimately your answer is formed by your worldview. I mean, if you don't believe in God, then there's really no discussion. There are no such things as miracles, case closed. Uh, but if you do believe in God, a God who has created all things, everything around us, then it's only reasonable that uh, miracles are possible. Uh, events can occur wherein, wherein the power of God kind of transcends what is normally perceived as natural law and does, does something that we can't explain by way of any known natural causes. And that's exactly the kind of event that John records happening here in, uh, in chapter six of his biography. Starting in verse one, he says this, he says, at one point, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but um, other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle of, of Jesus that, that's recorded in all four of his New Testament biographies. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write about it. Uh, why? Probably because it touched so many lives. And while it is traditionally known as the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd was much larger than that. How do we know? Well, we know because John says about 5,000 men were there. 
right? And uh, Matthew, in his, his, uh, his report, Matthew affirms that number, but he notes how it was 5,000 men besides men and women, or, or women and children, that is. See, in the, in the first century, first century Palestine, uh, women and children weren't allowed to eat uh, with men in public. It was, um, you know, just sort of, the, it was against social norms. So the crowd would have been segregated. It would have had the women and children over here, we would have the men over here, the men got counted, the rest did not. And so scholars estimate the crowd was more likely numbering upwards of 15 to 20,000 people. So in short, a lot of men, women, and children saw, experienced, and benefited from what Jesus does here. And the fact that this miracle is recorded by all four New Testament writers uh, serves as both uh, an internal and even more importantly, an external witness to the veracity of the accounts. What do I mean? Well, we know, historically, we know that all four New Testament biographies of Jesus were being circulated around Palestine within 40 years of this event taking place. And so a lot of the people who experienced the miracle would have still been alive. And if people in this region read these four documents that were being circulated, each claiming that Jesus performed this sort of uber miracle for thousands of people, and those in the area knew darn well it didn't happen. You know, nothing like that ever occurred, never took place. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were just fabricating a story. Then their writings about Jesus and his teaching, not to mention the claims of Jesus himself, would have had no credibility whatsoever. But it did happen, and people in the region knew it happened. Uh, this is not fiction. This was a historic event. So let's talk about it. John says it took place on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is basically his way of describing the northeastern region of the sea, most likely near the town of Bethsaida, which today is in what's known as the Golan Heights. Uh, he says it's Passover, so we know it's springtime. And uh, Jesus leads the disciples up a hillside where they all sit down, and then they notice this mass of people heading for them. And while John doesn't mention the time of day, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, report it was late in the afternoon, heading toward dinner time. And so realizing these people were going to be hungry, Jesus asks Philip, who, uh, by the way, was from the region. Actually, he was from this town of Bethsaida, so it makes sense that Jesus would ask him. He asks Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And immediately John tells us that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But he asked the question anyway. He says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these people? And Philip's like, what are you talking about, bread? We don't have, we don't have that kind of money. It would, it would take more than a half a year's salary to buy enough bread to feed this horde of people. And so suddenly, uh, there's a bit of a crisis. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are you know, being approached by and surrounded by a massive crowd of hungry fans. And I say fans because that's essentially what they were. I mean, they weren't true believers. Uh, even John says these people pursued Jesus simply because they were, they were, he was doing some impressive things and they wanted to see more, like the healing of the sick. Keep in mind, as we mentioned last week, the people in Galilee were way more interested in Jesus as a performer than who he was as a person, the Messiah he was claiming to be. And so this gathering, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a church service. It was more like a rock concert. You know, the fans came out in big numbers to see the show. Jesus was the headlining act, but there were no concession stands, no hot dog stands, no food. So the fans were hungry, and they're maybe going to get a little miserable. So that's really more like the scene. And so Jesus asked Philip, you know, where can we get bread? And Philip says, we don't, we don't, we don't have bread. We don't have enough money to buy enough bread. 
And then Andrew speaks up and he says, hey, I, I found this poor little kid over here, this poor little boy who has five small barley loaves and two small fish. And we know the boy was poor because at the time, barley bread was the food of the impoverished. It was, it was the food of the underprivileged. And, uh, and here's the thing. If you're picturing in your mind five nice loaves of fresh, soft, wonder bread and uh, two nicely smoked salmon fillets, uh, erase that image from your mind because the language that John uses here uh, could be better translated. This poor kid had five barley biscuits and two sardines. Uh, it was uh, pretty, pretty meager, pretty meager, which is exactly why Andrew basically says, I don't know how this is going to help us. Uh, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew. So he tells the disciples to have everyone sit down. And as they did, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record how Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he had the disciples distribute to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And then he did the same with the fish. And somehow, some way, some truly miraculous way, everyone, all the fans, had more than enough to eat with leftovers that Jesus told the disciples to collect in baskets. Now, given that Jesus never did anything without intentionality, here's the question. Why? Why do this? What was the purpose? What was the meaning behind the miracle? In his book entitled Miracles, uh, Christian author, thinker, and late Oxford professor C.S. Lewis writes about uh, the rarity and, and, and the reasoning behind the miraculous. And he tells his readers this, he says, hey, you, you, you're probably quite right in thinking you will never see a true miracle done. You're probably equally right in thinking there was a natural explanation of anything in your life, your past life, which seemed at the first glance to be odd. God doesn't shake miracles into nature at random as if from a pepper caster. They come on great occasions. They're found at the great ganglions of history, not political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known by men. Now, if Lewis is right, and I believe he is, then that means this miracle was a big deal. I mean, it came on a great occasion at an important moment, not in, only in Jesus' life and ministry, but in redemptive history. It was a big moment. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to imply I, I fully understand Jesus' reasoning behind it, because I'm not sure I understand all of it. But that said, I think it's safe to draw a few conclusions. First, it seems the miracle was meant to reveal to his fans, you know, the people of Galilee, who he was. Because let's face it, no human being has the ability to instantly transform five biscuits and two sardines into enough food to satisfy the likes of this, this massive crowd. Only God could do that. And this wasn't the first time he did, by the way. If you recall, Centuries earlier, when Moses um, led the Israelites out of Egypt uh, during the days of wandering in the wilderness to satisfy the people's physical hunger, what did God do? Do you remember? He miraculously provided food, right? He gave them manna, which God himself referred to as bread from heaven. See, Jesus uses this miracle to serve notice of who he was, deity in the flesh, it publicly affirms his divine and glorious nature. At the same time, the miracle illustrates to the people what he came to do, which was not merely meet their physical needs, but to meet their deeper spiritual needs. In fact, uh, the people picked up on this. They picked up on the whole Exodus imagery because the next day when they come out looking for Jesus, 
they find him, and Jesus tells them, you're looking for me not just because you saw a miracle, uh, but because you, you ate bread and you had your fill and you want more. And he says, stop searching for food that spoils instead. Jesus said, look for food that endures to eternal life. And the people said to him, you know, well, what other sign will you give us so we can believe you are who you say you are? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus responds, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd says, give us, okay, so give us this bread. And Jesus declares, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, as I see it, this miracle in which Jesus feeds all these people so they don't go hungry is similar in many respects to what he did at the wedding in Cana. Remember? Where he turned water into wine, ensuring the people there didn't go thirsty. All the while, if you recall, all the while thinking toward his death and how it would be his blood he later symbolizes with wine at Passover, his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Could it be that as Jesus performs this miracle, could he again be thinking about his death and about how his body, that he later symbolizes with bread at Passover, how his body would be sacrificed for this forgiveness of sins? I, I think it's entirely possible. Because when did John say this miracle took place? When the Jewish Passover festival was near. I mean, there is so much in and around, uh, so much symbolism in what's happening at this event. You know, the 12 baskets, many believe, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a sign to Israel. I mean, there's so much happening here, so many things going on with bread and Passover. We could, we could talk about so much, and we don't have time, so we have to move on. But suffice it to say, the miracle, that, you know, Jesus' feeding of these Galilean fans was meant to reveal who he was and what he came to do. But it was also intended to reveal some things, not just to his fans, but to his followers, to the disciples. Because when Jesus sees the crowd coming, he asks Philip, where are we going to get bread for everybody? That question raised not only Philip's anxiety, but it sent all the disciples scrambling. Uh, Matthew, in his account, says that Jesus flat out told them, I want you guys to feed all these people. But uh, they didn't have anything. And so had no idea what they were going to do. And yet, according to John, Jesus Jesus already knew exactly what he was going to do. So, why the question? Why the question? Well, he asked it, John says, to test not only Philip, but to test all of his disciples. And the idea of, te the idea of testing here is, is more about instruction. It's about a teaching opportunity. This miracle was meant to help his followers learn a few important lessons about faith. What are the lessons? Well, lesson one. Jesus wanted the disciples to know that he wants his followers involved in what he's doing in the world. That's why he asked the question. That's why he tells the guys to feed the crowd. It's why he has them distribute the food. It's why he has them clean up afterwards. Jesus wanted the disciples to be part of this, this um, exciting event. He wanted them to join in the adventure of making a spiritual difference in the lives of needy people. And you know what? That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. He, he wants the same for his followers today, for me, for, for you. And it's not just that he invites you into the adventure, but he calls you to be involved. I was reading an article yesterday um, 
uh, written, it was sort of a discussion article with some so-called church experts. And, uh, and they were talking about what the problems facing the church in America. And everybody has their opinion. Lack of commitment, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. And I'm reading and I'm thinking, how would I answer that question? And uh, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert. But uh, for what it's worth, what I fear is the greatest problem with the church today is boredom. Boredom. Spiritual boredom. Too many of us have settled for the safety and the comfort of the status quo. And there's little, if any, sense of spiritual adventure, spiritual purpose. Some of us say we want adventure, we want that, but the fact is that adventure requires risk. It means involvement. Are you involved in the adventure? If not, you're probably spiritually bored. Lesson two. Jesus wants his followers to know that making a spiritual difference in people's lives is not just about declaring the truth, but demonstrating compassion. Luke says uh, in his account that during the encounter, Jesus spoke to the crowd about the kingdom of God, but he didn't just lecture them, he loved them. He showed the love of God by addressing the immediate physical needs of the people. I've heard it said, it's hard to hear the good news when your stomach is growling. And Jesus, Jesus realized that. So he meets people's physical needs while he offers to meet their spiritual needs at the same time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all report the same thing. They all say everybody had enough to eat. They all had enough to eat. They were all full. They were all satisfied. And here's the deal. I don't view this as an insignificant detail. I don't think they just tag this information on. I think this is specifically important. The fact that every individual was satisfied tells me that Jesus didn't look out and just see a massive humanity that was hungry. But he also knew the individual needs and desires of every man, woman, and child who was there. And he gave each of them, each of them, more than enough to the point where there were leftovers. Displaying what? Displaying the amazing and overabundance goodness and grace of God. I mean, understand something. If, if we want people around us, and our families, and our friends, our neighborhood, our schools, you know, our, our culture at large, if we want people to hear the good news of Jesus, it requires not just lecturing, but loving, and demonstrating the goodness and the grace of God in tangible ways. In other words, when we see the poor, we see the needy, the hungry, we should follow Jesus' instructions and with compassion give them something to eat. Do something loving for them so that they might what? They might hear the good news. Lesson three. Jesus wants his followers to learn that we cannot experience the power of God until we admit we're powerless. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and, and, and made all of this happen. But instead, he poses a question and he allows the situation to unfold where some anxiety gets raised and, and it ultimately leads the disciples to realize that they were, they were entirely helpless without him. They were helpless. Now let's be honest, so oftentimes as Christians, we in the church, we say, we sing, we talk about needing God and yet we live as if we don't. We live as if we don't most of the time. 
Some of us go through days, weeks, even seasons of life where we may not even acknowledge God's presence, let alone any, admit any need for his power. Until there's a crisis. In the context of crisis, we once again realize just how fragile we are and we admit to our helplessness. And our need for God's power is not just to do ministry type things, but to survive the ups and downs, the ins and outs of life in a broken world. And until we admit our helplessness in all of these things, you know, we, we miss the power because that's, when we admit it, that's where the power of God intersects with our experience. Lesson four. Jesus wanted his followers to know that trusting God means placing what you have in his hands for his use. And I I don't know, I could be wrong on this, but I think this may be the most challenging lesson of all, especially for the church uh, in America. If you think about it, the disciples had absolutely nothing. They had nothing. Uh, But then comes this little boy with five biscuits and two, two sardines, and he offers it to Jesus. And I say he offers it because it wasn't like the disciples went out and mugged the kid. You know, it wasn't, I didn't have, it wasn't like Jesus snatched the food from the kid's hand and then shoved his face out of the way and said, get out of here, kid, I got things to do. That's not how it worked, right? There's no mention of the kid crying or complaining. There's no selfish whining about having to give up his stuff, his food. What is he going to eat now? None of that. It's safe to assume the boy was asked for and then freely offered what he had. And he gives to Jesus, not crumbs, not just a portion of his food, of what little he had, he generously sacrificed it all. He gave it all. And Jesus took it. Jesus took the offering, and what did he do? He used it to feed what was essentially an entire city. You see what happens here, right? I mean... This little kid willingly gave up control of his stuff, gave up control of of what he had, of his food, and he ends up eating way more than he could ever have imagined. And not only that, he was filled, but the generosity, his generosity resulted in everybody else being filled, satisfied, everyone. It reminds me of a principle Jesus once taught about giving. He told his followers, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know, we live at a time and in a culture where a great crowd of people exists, a crowd in desperate need of good news. Desperate need of good news. News of God's love, news of God's grace, God's forgiveness. Um, And make no mistake about it, the opportunity that we have as the church, as followers of Jesus today, to make a spiritual difference in the life in the lives of, of, of men, women, and children is huge. It's a huge opportunity. It's a huge moment of history in which we live. People are spiritually hungry. They're waiting to be fed. The question is, will we, followers of Jesus, will the church, will we feed them, will we love them, will we serve them for Jesus? To do so requires generosity on the part of all of us. Together. I mean, just think about some of the things that, that we do as a church, for example, for people in our area and, and, and around the world. I mean, for example, we do things from uh, tutoring educationally at-risk kids 
and elementary schools along North Avenue to our east. We tutored them because these kids were failing out, these are third graders. So we created a program, a tutoring program, a, an educational intervention program, and now all those kids are outpacing the scores of the other kids in the district, and the district wants us to do more. I mean, that's pretty unprecedented. You know, doing that, we, we offer care and support groups to hurting, to hurting people, to people struggling with addictions. Uh, we work with middle school students, high school students, as you saw Josh talk about. Uh, we serve families. We, you know, we, we are scaring young, young girls from the streets of Kolkata, India, as well as young women from being trafficked uh, here in the Chicagoland area. We... Uh, we're planting churches around the world. We're assisting refugees here in DuPage County and in places like Syria. And some of you may not even notice this, but around the auditorium, we have several cameras now mounted. We're on the verge of streaming our services so people everywhere and anywhere can watch it on the internet. In fact, today was a beta, a beta test of, that, of streaming the entire service so that we can get this message of God's grace to more people because I don't think people recognize what Christianity really is. The only frightening thing about streaming is that my face is going to be on the camera, which is, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if it's going to help Jesus or hurt Jesus. Hopefully it'll be helpful, you know. But uh, we're, we're beta testing that today. Everything that we're doing in the name of Jesus here on Sunday morning throughout the week and literally around the world is made possible through our generous financial giving, mine and yours. You know, this little boy... He gave all he had to Jesus. He sacrificed it all. We're not asked to do that. We're not asked to do that. But we are asked to be radically generous. We're asked to be generous, which sounds a bit subjective, right? And it is subjective. It is subjective. Which is, I mean, how do you know when, when generosity, when you're generous or you're not generous, which is exactly why God called his people, everybody across the board to tithe, meaning... You give 10% off the top of your yearly income. That was, that was the deal. And because at least in God's eyes, that benchmark, that was the benchmark of where generosity begins. And, you know, uh, my wife and I, we, we've, we've tithed to church um, for 30 some years. We started when we were in grad school. 10% of nothing is really nothing, but we started, you know, and for 30 some years we've been, we've been tithing. And I just tell you that because I want you to know, <clears throat> pastors aren't exempt from generosity. We're called to be equally as, as sacrificial. And I, you know, I get some people say, well, you know, tithing was for Israel. It's not for the church. Okay, maybe, maybe not. But then how do you know when you're being truly generous? How do you know? Do you think your financial giving is sacrificial? Do you, do you, do you think it's where it, 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 it should be? Do you think it's where it could be? Do you think God sees it that way? I think it's important to, to ask yourself that, to talk with your spouse or a friend, someone you trust. Gain some accountability. This is an important deal. It's important to God. It's important to us. And listen, based on what happens with this miracle, let me suggest what it means to give sacrificially, put your loaves and fish, as it were, in the hands of God. First, it means that you recognize the world around you is in serious need. I don't think any of us would debate that. Serious need. And you trust God and you believe God he, that he wants to do something significant, that he wants to help people. 
You know, this little kid in the story, we don't, we don't know much about him. But what, what, what we do know is he believed Jesus could and would do something with his offering. Giving as he did meant he had faith. Now, maybe it was childlike faith, but it was faith nonetheless. Giving sacrificially, placing your loaves and fish in, in God's hands means you too have faith in him to do something spiritually significant in our world. It also means you're willing to obey. You're willing to obey because, again, as God's people, we're called to give sacrificially. Understand, Jesus talked about money all the time. He talked about money more than anything else. You know why? Because people were obsessed with it even in first century Palestine. And he told people where your money is is where your heart will be. Translation, where you put your money will display where your passions are, where your commitments are, what's most important to you. Now, I often hear people say, and I, they say it genuinely, they mean it, but they'll say, oh, man, I, I want to obey the will of God in my life. I really do, but I'm not sure, you know, should I, should I take this job over here or this job over here? Should I get this degree or pursue that degree? Do I move to New York? Do I stay in Chicago? Do I date this person? Do I date the other person? Do I keep this house? Do I buy a bigger house? What do I do? What does God want for me? What is, he, what is his will for me? Do you know what I think God is saying most of the time when he hears that? I think God is saying, hey, for a minute, will you stop worrying about the part of my will you don't know and start looking at and obeying the parts you do know? Like, are you a scrupulously honest individual because that's what I want you to be? Are you quick to forgive others as you've been forgiven? Do you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Are you a, uh, do you stand up for the marginalized, speaking out for justice? Are you a remarkably generous person, especially when it comes to the work of God? I don't know the answer to that question or the other ones. But here's the thing, you know the answer, and so does God. Listen, C.S. Lewis was right when he said, God doesn't shake miracles into nature at random as if from a pepper shaker. It's true, I think we all get that. Most of us get that chances are pretty good. You and I will never see a true miracle done like this one, witnessed by Matthew, Mark, John, who all record it because it was a big deal and it impacted an awful lot of people. But just because we didn't see it or experience it doesn't mean we can't learn from it. Because understand, this miracle was not just about Jesus feeding his fans and revealing to them who he was. It was also about teaching his followers about who he wants them to be and what he wants them to do. To be involved, to love others, to have faith, and be sacrificially generous for the sake of the crowd. For the sake of the crowd. So whether you're a fan or a follower, may we all learn from this miracle. May it change our lives forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that um, John and Matthew, Mark, they all recorded this event. And even though we recognize that uh, events like this are very rare in history, chances are we'll never experience anything quite like it, we can still learn from it. Because Jesus didn't do things. We recognize Jesus didn't do things haphazardly. He did them with a purpose. And Father, while we recognize that we have limitations, we can't fully know your mind, why you do the things you do, but 
I think it's safe to draw some conclusions from this of what Jesus was trying to teach his fans and even more importantly for us in this room, what he was trying to teach his followers. And I pray that you would help us, give us the courage to uh, acknowledge in our own hearts and before you which group we're actually in. Are we just fans? Are we just hanging around Jesus because we kind of like him? Or we have, have we moved to the other group that we believe he is who he says he is, Savior of the world, and that through him, your grace is poured out and we experience forgiveness for sins, our brokenness, and our offered life everlasting. And it's through Jesus our world can find help and healing. Do we believe that? If so, then we're your followers. And as such, you call us into the adventure of bringing this good news of your love and grace to our world. And it requires involvement. It requires faith. It requires loving others. It requires sacrificial giving. Um, may we be that kind of people, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the crowd around us, for the sake of our world. We love you this morning. May not only our words, but our lives and our giving express that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? I want to thank you all for being with us this morning. And uh, I think it's a good question to ask. You know, are you a fan, Jesus? You know, just kind of hang around. You like what he says. Think he's a good teacher. He's interesting. Or are you actually a follower? Fan or follower? Which is it? And how do you know? <laughs> In your life, how do you know that you're a real follower? Uh, Jesus gave us some, some ways to figure it out. So uh, it's a question worth asking. I hope you'll be honest about it with yourself, with your friends, with your spouse, and especially with God. If you have more questions about uh, all of this, maybe you want to know more about this whole Christianity thing, you can talk to someone you know from Parkview. You can come down following the service. Some of our prayer team folks will be here as well. But uh, thank you for coming, and I invite you to come back next week. We're going to continue with this series. Uh, I hope you're finding it helpful. I know that I am. So. Um, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll head back out into the world. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together in this place. But we recognize worship doesn't end here, because it's not just about singing. It's not just about, it's not just about me talking. It's not just about us praying together. It's about how we live our lives every single day, for they are to be an act of worship, where we not only talk about Jesus with those we, we come in contact with, but we live more and more like Jesus, loving others, even those who are completely different from us, loving them, serving them, feeding them in the name of Jesus, and giving to your work for them, for the sake of the crowd. Lord knows our world needs it, Father. So may you empower your church to be a, a catalyst of change as we bring this good news to our culture. We love you this morning. Now may your hand of grace and peace, strength and courage rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. See you next week.